Hello and welcome back everyone. You're listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. I'm your host, Kadra, and I'm so excited that you guys are here listening today. I have got a great story for you guys, a nice spooky story. But before we get into that, if you missed last week, that was a great episode. Definitely go back and check that out. I covered a true crime case, the case of the Fort Worth Trio. Definitely check that out. As far as ways to support the podcast, we're going to go through those really quickly as always. If you haven't left a five-star review yet for the podcast and you've been enjoying it, please do that. It takes two seconds. Just click the star rating option when you pull up the podcast. You can also follow the podcast so that you know when new episodes are being released. And other ways to support could be, you know, sharing the podcast with friends and family, putting the link on your socials if you've been enjoying it. Also, I always am taking requests for new stories, so you can send those requests to my Gmail, perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. You can also send me any crazy stories that you want to share, any mysterious, wild, creepy things that have happened to you. I want to hear your stories, so you can send me those. Uh, Some people were asking about the voice messages because my mom sent me a voice message and you can send those. Uh, They'll go directly to me on Anchor where I record all my episodes. So if you ever wanna send a voice message, they are one minute max and I'm happy to send you the link to do that. Uh, You know, email, DM or whatever. So you can just ask for that. You can DM me on Instagram and follow me on Instagram for the latest perplexity updates at Perplexity Mystery Podcast. All of the sources for today's episode will be in the show notes, but I did want to just plug really quickly the podcast Dark House because their uh, episode about this story was very helpful to me. So if you guys haven't listened to Dark House, I discovered it as I was doing research for the story and they do a lot of cool episodes about creepy houses that can't escape their past. So check that out if you like creepy ghost kind of stories that are really well researched. Trigger warning for this episode. This episode contains content that may be considered disturbing for some listeners. It is going to be a creepy story. So listener discretion is advised for listeners below the age of 13. All right, so without further ado, I think we're ready to dive in. So let's dive in, shall we? Today, we're going to be talking about what has become known as the Kasha House of Kaimuki. And this house is known to be very haunted. Actually, the most haunted place in Hawaii. And this house is in a small neighborhood, Kaimuki, which is in Honolulu. This house has been shrouded in mystery for decades. So before we start to talk all about the house and the crazy, creepy things that have happened there... I first thought we should talk about some history about this area because it definitely ties to what we're going to be talking about. So of course we know that Hawaii is a very beautiful state. It's the largest island in the United States and it's a collection of volcanic islands. There's also a strong electromagnetic energy in this area because of all these volcanoes. So as far back to 400 to 1000 AD, Polynesians traveled about 2,000 miles to Hawaii. 
by canoe, and during this time, Hawaiian mythology developed. The people during this time lived in communities that were mostly protecting territories, and they were mostly skilled fishermen led by chieftains. Going way later into the late 1700s, there was a man named Kamehameha. This man was born into a very prominent, well-distinguished family. He was the guardian of the Hawaiian god of war, and he had control over a lot of important territories and a lot of support from chieftains in the area. So eventually, Kamehameha became the first official ruler of Hawaii, the king. There's a lot of mystery around where his body was later buried as well. Just a little fact there. So now we get to the Americanization of Hawaii. So the first European to arrive was a man named James Cook. Very uh, European white name. James Cook arrived in 1778. And at this time, the population of Hawaii was around 300,000. They were flourishing, very beautiful community. Their economy was doing really well because of all the sugar and pineapple that was there. They were doing tons of exportation. And by 1820, Christian missionaries and Americans were arriving by the boatload, bringing their Christian message and a plethora of diseases. These diseases would devastate the Hawaiian population. By the mid-1800s, there were only about 70,000 people in Hawaii. And remember, there were 300,000 before. During the 1800s, Hawaii was still recognized as an independent country. And they had consulates all over the world. It was important during certain wars, declaring neutrality during the Civil War, for example. And their economy was also doing really well, like I said. So this is what attracted a lot of Anglo-American sugar plantation owners. So over time, these Anglo-Americans started to advocate to get fair representation in the kingdom's politics. As time went on, America started to influence Hawaiian politics and their government. So at some point, the Hawaiian government agreed to cede a small inlet near Pearl Harbor. And the U.S. military wanted it, but also natives were pretty opposed to this. So by the late 1800s, Americans controlled Hawaii's economy almost completely. And the man that monopolized Hawaii's economy, specifically the sugar industry, was from San Francisco his son would later inherit this industry. And fun fact, that son's wife, a woman named Alma, was the reason the term sugar daddy was invented. So he spoiled her often and it literally resulted in the term sugar daddy. So I thought that was pretty great. Anyway, with this monopolizing though, the need for laborers in Hawaii was increasing. And a lot of these laborers would come from Asia. By the late 1890s, after many generations of royalty and figureheads reigned in Hawaii, the last queen, Liluo Kalani, was forced to hand over the throne to the U.S. She was also held captive after they overthrew the kingdom. 
So moving into the late 1800s, in 1898, the U.S. president decided to support the American elite. He was eventually convinced to do this. He was against it at first, but ultimately he decided to support the American elitists because they were trying to advocate for the U.S. annexation of Hawaii as a territory. One of the main reasons for this ultimately was because the U.S. really wanted a military base in the Pacific. So Hawaii was an easy way to do that. Okay, so like I said, a lot of Asian laborers came into Hawaii. This resulted in there being a high Asian population in Hawaii. So that's going to play into some of the folklore and legends later. So now moving in to a small neighborhood in Honolulu known as Kaimuki. Kaimuki was built on top of lava. So the name Kaimuki actually means tea oven. And this is a reference to a legend that is in this area about the mini huni. And this is a common folklore story about small people who lived on the islands and cooked a lot of tea roots. Kaimuki, unlike the rest of Hawaii, is actually a very dry and dusty area, and they also have a higher elevation. Shipwrecks are also really common in this area, and Kaimuki is filled with a lot of older homes that would be seen as charming. They're pretty modest bungalows, you know, not giant mansions, not small huts. Most of the houses were built before the 1940s also. Some even dated back to the 1910s. But as they were building in Kaimuki in the 1920s, the stock market crashed, and this impacted a lot of these houses and resulted in them going into foreclosure. So because of this, and there being really limited records that were kept about houses and such during this time period, it's difficult to know the exact address or location of where the Kasha House of Kaimuki was, but a lot of people have an idea. Many people believe that the house was located off of 8th Street and Harding Avenue. And there is a picture online of what people believe the Kasha House was, so I'll be sure to include that photo in the Instagram post about this episode. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into some ghost stories, and then we'll talk about some Japanese folklore that ties into all of this. So the Kasha House's first bad press mention hit the Honolulu Star on August the 13th in the year of 1942. And this wasn't long after the attack on Pearl Harbor, which happened on December 7th, 1941. Just a reminder for those who may not know, the attack on Pearl Harbor was done by the Japanese military, and it resulted in America becoming heavily involved in World War II. So the climate in Hawaii was pretty tense during this time, and according to an article, police responded to a call from a woman in an undisclosed house in Kaimuki who kept shouting, quote, she's trying to kill my children, she's trying to kill my children. So police respond to this call, and when they arrived, they found a 10-year-old boy sitting on the sofa with his two older sisters that were in their late teens, and the mother was there as well. Everyone in the house was shrieking, and according to reports, the police witnessed the children 
being thrown around into the air, being slapped across the face, being choked, and having their hair pulled. But the police couldn't see what was causing this. They were being thrown around and tortured by seemingly nothing. The mother, frantic, was waving tea leaves and sprinkling Hawaiian salts, which is a common ritual that's supposed to chase away the kasha. The kasha is from Japanese folklore, and it is a very creepy monster, so we'll talk about the kasha more in a second. So the mother said that initially strange things started happening at the house at about 10 o'clock at night when her 10-year-old son claimed that he smelled a strange odor of a ghost. And I, I wonder if that was maybe the smell of sulfur. I also heard some things that said it's common to have a strange smell before you see a ghost or experience something paranormal and that the smell could be different for everyone. So I'm not sure exactly what the smell was for this kid. Apparently a lot of people smell like moisture, like the smell you get before it's about to rain. So anyway, the boy tells his mother about this strange smell and these feelings he's experiencing, like there's something paranormal around. And I guess this angered the entity because it proceeded to attack the boy. And again, the girls were also attacked as well, and it seemed like they were being choked. One of the things the mom said, too, is that she felt like it was her husband's fault, that he was to blame. So with all of this happening, eventually the family was so freaked out, they all fled to a family member's house. And then you don't really hear anything about this house until 30 years later. So about 30 years later, another 911 call came, and this time it was from three young women who were occupants of an undisclosed house in Kaimuki. They reported hearing strange noises, and one of the girls said she felt someone touch her arm. But whoever it was had then run away or disappeared, but they felt like this thing was still in the house. And by the way, both of these calls and experiences were uh, very well documented. So this one specifically, there's an editorial article that was written by a historian and a reporter, so both reputable sources. And they found this information about the three women from a police report. So the three women asked the police if they would be willing to come to the house and follow them to another location to make sure that they arrived there safely. So the officers agreed, and they arrived, and it sounds like there were two officers. So the girls piled into their car, which was a three-seater truck, and the police followed behind them, and they started driving down Wailai Avenue, I think is how you say it. So they're driving down Wailai Avenue, and all of a sudden, the girl who was driving made a very sharp turn into a parking lot. So the police get closer and they can see into the truck. You know, they're trying to figure out why they pulled over. And the girl in the middle seat appeared to be getting strangled by something. She was trying to fight off some kind of invisible force. So an officer jumped out of his car and ran over to assist. As he got closer to the driver's seat, he said he saw a large calloused hand 
that grabbed his arm and twisted it. So the officers call for backup and another officer arrived. And this other officer that arrived said that the officer who had tried to help the girls appeared very shaken and he was white as a sheet. One of the officers tells the girl that had gotten choked to get into the police car. The other two girls were instructed to just follow the police officers. So as soon as the girl got in the police car, the police car wouldn't start. The motor died. Then they tried to get uh, the girls back in the truck again. They just put all three girls back in the truck. And as soon as they did this, the police car magically started working again. But then the police officers see the girl clawing at her neck again, unable to breathe. So many people believe that the three young women lived at the same house from the story 30 years prior, off of 8th Street and Harding Avenue. So rumors begin to swirl about what the heck is going on at this house. A familicide rumor is spread. So the rumor was that a father murdered his entire family and then buried the family in the backyard, which caused the house to be haunted. And then there was this very common theory about the kasha. So like I said earlier, the kasha is from Japanese folklore. And the kasha is believed to be a demonic, shape-shifting creature. And I'll post a drawing of the kasha on Instagram. So the kasha is a human-eating ghost. And this creature is known to frequent inner cities, searching for humans and fresh corpses. So it lives off of eating flesh. It's believed that the kasha commonly hid in plain sight, disguised as house cats. Because remember, they're shape-shifting. And according to the kasha origin story, kasha were once ordinary house cats. Like other animals, as they age in years and their tails grow longer, Japanese folklore says that cats begin to develop magical powers. And some cats eventually turn into kasha. Fear of these demonic cats has long existed in Japan. And since ancient times, folk wisdom tells us to not let cats near dead bodies. And if a cat jumps over a coffin, the corpse inside the coffin will rise up. Fears like these have given rise to superstitious traditions, such as cutting a cat's tail short in order to prevent the cat from learning magic. And I must have a pretty magical cat <laughs> because he's black, which is already superstitious. He's, you know, getting older, he's middle-aged, and he has a pretty long tail. <laughs> So who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll see him do some magic someday. Hopefully he doesn't turn into a kasha, though. So it's believed that when these kasha transform into their natural state, they're more like humans, except they're larger. They walk on two legs. And their true forms are believed to only come out at a funeral. If you see a kasha at a funeral, it means that they're trying to usher the recently deceased to hell as their eternal punishment. So it's not good. It's a bad omen to see Akasha at a funeral. At night, it's believed that Kasha return to hell, and you'll usually see them surrounded by flames. 
In some stories, Kasha are known to possess bodies, and in other stories, they're just known to eat the body. I also found some photos of the article clippings that talked about these creepy stories and 911 calls at the house. So I'll put those clips in the Instagram post as well. So the Kasha house has been torn down in about the last 15 years, and it has since been replaced by condos. But it's said that the dark energy in this place very much still lingers. And this is according to locals. So moving more into present day, in 2016, a man named Keith Mann wrote an article titled, I lived in the most haunted house in Hawaii. So Keith lived in a new apartment complex that had replaced the original house on 8th and Harding, but he did not have a great experience. And he very much believes that this place was haunted. And he didn't believe in the paranormal when he moved in, but he would later change his mind. So in the podcast, Dark House, they actually were able to interview Keith Mann. So that's really cool. I would definitely recommend checking out their episode because they interview him. And then they also interview this other guy that we're going to talk about in a minute. So Keith said that he moved into the apartment with some roommates and numerous locals warned him about how haunted it was. But he didn't listen. And he said, quote, according to several people I talked to, Nobody had stayed in the house for more than three months. There were stories of families fleeing in terror. So again, not being a believer in the paranormal, and because he was offered a really good deal on the apartment, he ignored the warnings and he and his roommates moved in. So in the article, Keith says, quote, I always remember the feeling of something ominous around when I was home alone or up late by myself. After the main place was destroyed, it's turned into more of a light haunting. But make no mistake, there is something still there. Whether it's Kasha or the ghosts of the souls murdered on that land or what, it's real. And I advise anybody curious not to go looking for trouble. What happened at the Kaimuki house turned me into a superstitious person. It didn't look like horror movies or ghosts like you're probably imagining. It's an unseen energy that you can't see but definitely can feel. The best way I can describe it is that feeling when you know something bad is about to happen. A fight, a car accident, or something really terrible where your nervous system shoots adrenaline into your veins and your brain goes into fight or flight. You may not be able to see what's about to happen, but your subconscious has picked up on the signs and knows it's time to get out of there, end quote. So this was really interesting to me because he really describes it being, you know, an unseen force that you can't see, but you can definitely feel. And that sounds exactly like those 911 calls from the other families. So Keith also recalled that he would wake up very often in the middle of the night at the apartment and it would always be 4:33 a.m. and he would feel icy cold and anxious. And the AC unit in the apartment could not be lowered more than 65 degrees even if he tried. Like there was no way to get it lower than that. 
but he would wake up and he could see his breath and he would be shivering. And he would check the AC unit and it would always say it was around 50 degrees. So how could this happen? So then another thing that would always happen is all the smoke alarms in the apartment would go off at once. They would beep in unison. And then he also specified in the article that the smoke alarms were not connected to a central hub. They were all in separate rooms and battery powered, yet they would all beep together. I found the smoke alarm thing interesting because in the Kasha legend, they are known to have a ring of fire around them. So it's like, could the Kasha spirit be triggering the smoke alarms? I don't know. Keith would always have this extremely cold and tight sensation in his chest as well. He said it felt like there was ice in his body and in his veins. He also always had a strong sense that something was staring at him. He also had a pet cat, and he said that his cat would often freak out. So because of all these stories and legends, historians have studied the Kasha house And there was a book written in the 1990s by a professor of American studies named Glenn Grant. Glenn relocated to Honolulu later in his life, and he became an expert on Hawaiian folklore. So he wrote this book called The Obake Files, O-B-A-K-E. And one of the stories in the book is about the Kasha House of Kaimuki. Glenn had an apprentice, a guy named Lopaka Kapanui, and Lopaka Kapanui specializes in local legends and ghost tours. This guy was also interviewed in the Dark House podcast, so I'll include his photo in the Instagram post. Lopaka has an interesting origin story, to say the least. So in the interview, he talked about how he was adopted when he was only three months old, and when he was about seven or eight years old, he started having kidney problems and had to go to the hospital. So he ended up having surgery and he actually died on the table for several minutes. And when he woke up from the surgery, he started to have paranormal experiences where he could hear and see things that he couldn't see before. So in this interview, Lopaka Kapanui started to talk about a lot of Hawaiian local legends from the 1940s but, you know, slightly different. In the 80s, when Glenn Grant had a radio show, he recalled that people would call in and share ghost stories, and many of the stories would be about the Kasha House of Kaimuki. Lupaka also said that Glenn at one point took him to the actual house, but he did acknowledge that the articles never printed the actual address. He also talked about a story that Glenn told him, and Glenn claimed he had heard a story about a Samoan military man who moved into the house with his mother. His mother was a very traditional Samoan woman, and she was not happy that this man had come back with a white woman that he wanted to marry. So the mother died, and in Samoan tradition, you're supposed to bury your loved ones in the backyard so that they're always with you. So the story goes that he followed this tradition burying her in their backyard. And one night, when he was on duty, his wife was at home, and she began to scream horrifically. 
because an unseen force was throwing her children around. She could see something pulling their hair and slapping them across the face. Their belief at this time was that this was the Samoan mother's poltergeist, a culmination of her anger. And there's actually documentation with the Honolulu Police Department to support this story. The Honolulu Police also supposedly have a logbook where the officers have jotted down any otherworldly experiences that they've had. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Lopaka also talked about how in Kaimuki, there's tons of stray cats that seem out of place. Like it doesn't really make sense why there's so many there. I thought that was interesting because, you know, it's hinting to that legend of the Kasha. There's another place in Hawaii, the Hawaii Memorial Cemetery, that, according to Lapaka, has had some pretty interesting experiences with quote-unquote cats. So in this interview, he told the story of a man who was at a funeral there, and the man saw a calico cat, but it just seemed out of place. There was something strange about this cat. And cats were not common in this area. The cat walked around the hearse, and the man saw a couple of sparks behind the cat's tail. The cat disappeared behind the hearse, and the man continued to watch and watch, but the cat disappeared. Later on, the people that were attending services that day started to get sick, and they found scratch marks on the back of their calves. Lopaka also said, there's always some type of smell before Akasha comes. So this would be, you know, tied to the little boy story who said that he smelled a strange smell before that entity came. Lopaka also said that he has smelled Akasha before when he was at a funeral. And the smell for him was different. He described the smell as the aroma around right when you're coming down with the flu like when your joints start to ache. And he said the smell was so overwhelming, he almost had to leave the funeral. And Lopaka tells a lot of really interesting stories in his interview, so definitely go listen to it on Dark House. I'm just not going to tell all of the stories because not all of them, you know, tie to the Kasha House legend. But he told this other story uh, about a man who lived in Honolulu during the plantation era, and he was building his own house and ran out of lumber. He cools off, he takes a break and goes hiking in the mountains. And while he's hiking, he came across an old temple. He didn't realize this was an old temple of human sacrifice. He took all of these wooden images from the temple and he used those as lumber to build his house. So it's believed that this is the Kasha House of Kaimuki. So I thought that was interesting. It kind of reminded me of Hellfire Farm or Hielfenog, which I think is episode four. So that house had a, a similar history too. They like literally ground up the headstones of deceased and used those to build the house. So that's definitely a bad omen. So Lopaka said the last thing that he heard about the Kasha House of Kaimuki was that the couple that owned it had tried to paint the walls and they went to grab these large fans after they painted. So they were going to bring in these fans to, you know, speed the drying process along. And when they brought the fans in, the walls had gone back 
to their original color. So at first, the couple thought that they were crazy. (laughs) Maybe they were hallucinating from the paint fumes. But, you know, time passes and the color still stayed unchanged. So they went to the hardware store, bought more paint, came back, and painted again. And the same thing happened. So eventually, the couple jumped in the car and they fled the house. (laughs) Probably a good idea. They said as they were running to the car to flee, they heard the entire house make a loud creaking noise, like a... (laughs) So super creepy story. Lopaka knows tons of folklore, legends, he does ghost tours all throughout Hawaii, so he's got a lot of interesting stories. You can listen to more in the Dark House episode, or you can also check out his website, which is mysteries-of-hawaii.com, and I'll include that in the show notes as well. And that is the story of the most haunted house in Hawaii, the Kasha House of Kaimuki. Such a cool story. I I love this story because it's one of those things where it's like, even if you're a skeptic, there's so much history and folklore tied to the house and the stories are so similar and well-documented that at the very least, a skeptic, I feel like, would have a really hard time explaining what's happening in this area. And the fact that there's still creepy, haunting things going around in this neighborhood and the locals and residents still say that they're scared to go there should tell you something. So whatever this thing is, it's clearly attached to the land. People don't even jog unless they're like in pairs. So that's a common thing in this area is you're instructed to jog in like pairs of two to four people and to not jog at night, especially in this area, because it's so haunted. There's also tons of really interesting stories uh, about like, you know, other ghosts and entities of Hawaii. So who knows, maybe I'll do a story about that. Uh, Lapaka talked about the shark god and then this other woman who was murdered in the shark god's cave and her ghost and how it haunts the area. So like I said, if you want to hear more stories like that, definitely go listen to that Dark House episode and check out his website. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I really liked telling it. I love the creepy haunting stories for sure. Just remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, there are always ways you can support it. Leave a five-star review, tell your friends and family about it, share the link for the podcast on your socials, Be sure you're following the podcast so you know when new episodes have been released. You can also follow me on Instagram at Perplexity Mystery Podcast so that you can see those photos that tie to the episodes and to keep up with the latest Perplexity updates. If you have topic requests or a great story you want to tell me, email me. I would love to read your stories. PerplexityMysteryPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love your support. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye.